This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Stories in Music brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. From Peter and the Wolf and the Story of Swan Lake to a hilarious bel canto opera called Juanita the Spanish Lobster, these recordings are designed to introduce classic tales, history, and exciting musical performances to children. The Maestro Classic Stories in Music series has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classic CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. Okay, everyone, how about a mini quiz? Name this opera. It's based on a play by Voltaire. It's a tale of love, deception, and murder, all in an epic fight for the throne of Babylon. Any guesses? Find out in today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. I'm Naomi Baratera. Rossini's Semirama Day was a popular mainstay of the Italian opera circuit in the 1820s and 30s, but we rarely see it on season rosters today. In fact, it's been almost 25 years since its last Met appearance. Still, this bel canto rarity is full of musical and dramatic highlights. To guide us through it, we have Dr. Jeffrey Langford, the Assistant Dean for Doctoral Studies and Chair of the Music History Department at Manhattan School of Music. Thank you, everybody, for coming. This is a nice big crowd tonight. Sometimes I like to think it's just me that draws the big crowd, and then other times I realize it's the opera. It's okay. Um, let me get all my paperwork set up here. <clears throat> so we have a real treat in store tonight. I don't know how many of you have seen this opera already because it opened. Yes, a few of you have. Oh, a lot of you have. Okay. And you came back for the lecture. That's great. Um, I'm going tonight myself, so I have not seen the production, but this will be interesting. Um, Giacchino Rossini, who we're talking about today, was born in 1792. That means one year after Mozart died. <clears throat> and he lived all the way to 1868, which puts his death more or less in the middle of Wagner's career or Verdi's career. But Rossini's operatic career was not nearly as long as those dates might seem to suggest. Um, he actually came into prominence around 1810, uh, worked in Italy writing comic and serious opera. Then he moved to Paris, uh, where he wrote, uh, at the end of his career, French grand opera. And in fact, his last big opera was William Tell, written in 1829. That's a big French grand opera. So you can see his career is only about 20 years in length, despite the fact that he lived a long time. 
Uh, <clears throat> everyone always likes to ask me why he quit writing when he did, when he lived so many years after his last foray into the world of opera. And I always like to say there's probably two things, maybe three things. Number one, um, I think he was lazy. <laughs> Actually, we know he was lazy. There's, there are stories about Rossini working on an opera in bed and then dropping a page of his manuscript on the floor and being too lazy to get up out of bed to pick it up and he just rewrites the page. <laughs> so, so it was lazy. Um, the other thing is he loved to cook. And if you've ever seen pictures of Rossini, you can see how much he enjoyed cooking because by the end of his life, he was rather rotund. But actually, the real reason I think Rossini retired from the opera stage was that he was facing major competition from a whole brand new generation of Italian opera composers, Donizetti, uh, Bellini, and then early Verdi. So he stepped aside for those people. <clears throat> now today, Rossini is far better known as a composer of comic operas. The Barber of Seville, for instance, or Cenerentola are great examples and they're extremely popular. But in terms of overall historical significance, Rossini was actually much more important as a composer of serious opera, despite the fact that most of his works in that form have since dropped out of the active repertoire of almost every major opera house, which I think is sort of a shame. To put it succinctly, serious Italian opera, what we call opera serias, uh, was on the verge of extinction at the end of the 18th century. Mozart, for example, wrote only two opera seria at the end of his life. The rest of Mozart's operas are, of course, all the great um, buffa operas, Marriage of Figaro, etc. The cause of this imminent extinction of serious Italian opera was the sociological revolution that we know as the Enlightenment, that period in the 18th century when philosophers began writing about human rights and the equality of all men. The effect of this sociological movement on music was that as the common man began to assume greater economic and political power, he also began to play a more active role in art and culture. As a result, we see a change in the makeup of opera audiences, from mostly aristocratic to now far more middle class. Prior to this sociological revolution, the old opera seria of the 18th century had been primarily an aristocratic form of entertainment, full of artificialities and formalities of all kinds. The plots were drawn from mythology or ancient history, and the parts of the male heroes in these operas were sung by soprano voices, um, castrati, um, and the whole castrato phenomenon is a fascinating one which if we have time at the end, we can talk about. But the castrato was extremely popular in the 18th century in serious opera. And all of these things, the subject matter and the castrati, all violated the enlightenment ideals of naturalness and simplicity and made for a kind of opera that the new middle class was simply not going to tolerate. So obviously something had to change if opera was going to survive into the new century. So into this dire situation comes Rossini as part of a new generation of composers who realized that major changes were necessary if serious opera in Italy was going to survive. So he made a whole bunch of changes. I'm going to list them for you and then we'll talk about some of them individually. Number one, he changed the subject matter. Number two, he eliminated the castrati. Number three, 
he eliminated secco recitative. That's the kind of recitative you hear in Mozart's comic operas with the harpsichord playing a little chord and then the lots of dry speech-like recitative. He got rid of that, replaced it with what we call accompanied recitative, the orchestra accompanying the recitative. Then he added ensembles and choruses uh, for more musical variety because opera in the 18th century, serious opera in the 18th century, had been nothing but a string of grand, large da capo arias. That was it. And then, lastly, he established a bunch of new musical forms, which we will talk about today. So for all these reasons, uh, Rossini is extremely important. Now, the first step in this necessary remaking of serious opera was to create something to which the common man could relate. That meant a switch from subjects based on history and mythology in trade for subjects now drawn from modern history and contemporary literature. And by the way, modern history for somebody writing in 1810 or 1820 meant anything from 1600 on, last couple of hundred years. <clears throat> so it's not all that modern from our point of view. But these are subjects, that is modern history and contemporary literature, with which the average middle-class opera-goer might be more familiar. But this change of subject matter could not be enacted overnight. Rossini didn't just get up one morning and say, okay, I'm done with those operas, I'm going to write a new kind of opera. Um, Rossini actually got caught in a transitional period. And some of his operas have titles that look fairly contemporary, like, for instance, Elizabeth, Queen of England. All right, that's around 1600. Or Shakespeare's Othello, that would also be around 1600. Or how about The Lady of the Lake, based on a novel by Sir Walter Scott, which would be 19th century. So, at the same time, however, there are a whole bunch of other Rossini operas, the titles of which do not give away what they're all about, because you probably don't know them. For instance, Tancredi, Armida, Semiramide. These are all subjects drawn from ancient history. So Rossini was half one foot in the old style and one foot in the new style. So we're going to take a look now at Ros Rossini's Semiramide, the opera on tap for this evening. The first thing to know about this opera is that it is long. It is really long. Uh, by my calculation, in the original score, there's at least four hours worth of music and then add the interminable intervals between acts, and you're in store for a six-hour evening. So, as a result, lots of the music in this opera is always cut. And this, by the way, is true even of the premiere in 1823. Right from the get-go, Rossini cut a bunch of stuff. But the thing about this is, how and where you make the cuts makes a huge difference. You either improve the opera, or you ruin the opera. And I'm going to try to show you a little bit of both here tonight. I don't know what kind of cuts the Met has made in this production, because I haven't seen it yet. But it, I'm sure they have cut all kinds of things left and right. Otherwise, you'd be there till midnight. OK, now, uh, let's first look at the issue of singers. So when you look at the list of characters, the first thing you notice is that the hero, Arsace, is sung by a mezzo-soprano, dressed, of course, to look like a man. At least, we hope. He looks like a man. She looks like a man. The production I'm showing you tonight, the video we're looking at, is an old Metropolitan Opera production with Marilyn Horne playing the part of Arsace. Fabulous, fabulous singer, of course. She does not look like a man. I'm sorry. <laughs> However, <clears throat> this idea of the mezzo-soprano playing a male role, playing the role of the hero, in this case an army captain, is part of a, yet another one of these transitions that Rossini got caught up in. 
um, the transition between the old castrato heroes of the 18th century and the new tenor heroes of the mid-19th century. He realized that the castrati had to be abandoned because they were simply far too artificial for the subject matter of the new romantic opera. Rossini, nevertheless, was not willing to give up the style of bel canto singing for which the castrati were so famous. So his solution was to replace the male castrato with a female mezzo-soprano, what they call entravesti, meaning in disguise. Sometimes the Italians also use the term musico to describe this female mezzo-soprano playing a male role. But of course, this begs the question, what is bel canto? Now, I imagine you all know what bel canto is, but I'm going to give you a definition anyway. There are three primary ingredients, as I see it. Number one, beauty of tone. That is, you have to make a gorgeous sound. It should be liquid gold pouring out of your mouth. Um, Joan Sutherland, marvelous demonstration of an old soprano from the last century who poured liquid gold out of her mouth. Number two, virtuosic technique. The castrati were able to sing very rapid scale passages and arpeggios with pinpoint accuracy. The kind of thing of this sort of thing. They would sound literally like sort of like a flute etude. Um, no glissandos, no fudging. Um, I always tell my students who are trying to understand this, if you want to get an idea of how difficult it is, try singing just a scale passage. Da, and then double the tempo. Da, and then double the tempo again. Da. You notice how eventually it becomes a da, becomes a glissando? That's the problem with this kind of bel canto singing. You cannot make a glissando. You have to hit every pitch, no matter how fast you're going. And this is what the technique is all about. Then, number three, the ability to improvise. Absolutely essential for a bel canto singer. Now, the question of how much actual improvisation went on, on stage, not sure. Probably a lot of these singers worked it all out ahead of time and then went on stage and improvised. Um, but nevertheless, it looks like improvisation. So we'll talk more about all these things. Um, now, you can see all of these elements of bel canto at work in the first aria that Arsace sings in Act I. This aria, like most of the arias in Italian opera at this time, is in a new form called the Cavatina Cavalletta. So if you look again at the page that has the forms on it, right at the top is the Cavatina Cavalletta. This replaced the old Da Capo aria, which I don't want to even talk about. It, this new opera aria is a two-part aria here, <clears throat> most often used for the character's first entrance, in which part one is called the Cavatina, which is slow and lyrical and beautiful with a huge cadenza at the end. Part two is the Cavalletta, which is faster, so the tempo sequence is slow, fast. And the fast part, the Cavalletta, is fast and florid. All right? And this second half, the Cavalletta, is always repeated with improvised ornamentation to prove what uh, talent and ability the singer has to improvise. So that's the essential part of this, this new form. Okay. So in this first aria I'm going to play for you, there's a long recitative at the beginning in which uh, Arsace explains that he's happy to be at the royal palace because he is now able to see his beloved Princess Atzema. Um, 
<clears throat> now, then the text of the actual Cavatina after the recitative goes on to relate how he met Atsema and how they fell in love. All right, so that's all very nice. Now, all the melodic writing in this aria is extremely ornate and very decorative, full of what the Italians call fioriture, which literally means flowers. They are melodic flowers on the vocal line. They consist of trills, turns, mordants, little decorations and you'll, uh, little short scale passages. Uh, you will hear them all over the place. So let's listen to, or see, uh, Marilyn Horne do this first entrance aria of Arsace. Uh, I'm skipping the recit and going right to the cavatina. Those are the little decorations. Here's some more. And more there. Cadenza. Here comes the fast decorative thing. Um, following this is the cabaletta. Um, so all of these arias have these two parts with the second part repeated. So we're going to listen to the cabaletta, which is technically difficult, and then we'll listen to the repeat of the cabaletta where she adds more ornaments. So let's start with the cabaletta first, see what that sounds like. You'll notice the ch tempo change right away. This is the second half. These, these two things, by the way, the cavatina and the cabaletta were back to back. Um, so that there was no space between the two of them. In later Italian opera, they begin to separate for various kinds of reasons, but here, uh, the two are back to back, so we're just gonna r run right from one to the next. Here 
Okay, now, change of tempo. This part is always more upbeat, more lively. To appreciate what she's going to do on the repeat, you have to have a memory to remember what she just did. So here comes the repeat. to repeat with changes improvised on the spur of the moment I'm sure or maybe not here that's all different she's literally rewriting the melody Fabulous. The cadenzas are a very important part of this. In the score, you can always find the cadenza sort of written out in small notes, but that's what the composer wants you to take as the basis for your rather long improvised cadenza. The problem with most contemporary performances is that singers simply sing what the composer wrote in little notes and let it go at that. When in fact, back in the 19th century, the tradition was, oh yeah, okay, that's the idea. Now let me see what I can do with that. Um, and now Marilyn Horn is actually in that last cadenza there, improvising on the cadenza that Rossini left. Okay, 
Um, now, I have to play you one other great aria, or at least part of one other great aria. Uh, this is Semiramide's aria, Bel Raggio, which is also in the first act. I want to play you the cabaletta of Bel Raggio, uh, because it is a spectacular demonstration of what cabalettas and technical difficult, technically difficult singing was all about, and also the improvisation thing. Um, the cabaletta, I think I'll just let it run right through from the cabaletta one time to the cabaletta decorated without stopping. And I'll just say to you that the aria, the cabaletta itself, is written in A major, and it has a range that goes one ledger line above the treble clef. That's the end. That's it. On the decorated part, then, June Anderson adds another half an octave above that, going all the way to a high E, which is just like spectacular stuff. So see if we can cue up June Anderson doing Bel Raggio Cabaletta. the decorated version of the same thing. Let's see if we can make difficult impossible now. That's incredible singing. You have to understand also that in the 19th century, this is what people went to the opera for. 
for this great singing. And the singers know it. The singers were the kings and queens of opera. And after an aria like this, there would be huge round of applause. There would be continuous calls for encore. Let's hear it again. It was great. Let's hear it again. And then, most importantly, the singers would usually come out of character. Uh, here, of course, in modern day, the last note is held and the pose is held while we get brava, 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 et cetera, et cetera. But in Rossini's day, the singer would have come out of that pose, would have come down to the edge of the stage, taken a few bows. <laughs> so totally different kind of aesthetic about opera. Totally singer-driven opera. Okay, now let's go on and talk about ensemble singing. Um, ensembles had never been an important part of Italian opera seria in the 18th century, mostly because audiences were interested in this, the solo singing. Um, but this new serious opera of Rossini for the new 19th century had to have a broader appeal. So Rossini wisely decided that ensembles, ranging from duets all the way to trios, quartets, quintets, um, should be a part of his new opera. They had always been a part of Mozart's Italian operas, the comic operas, and so Rossini dips into the tradition of Italian comic opera and brings over the ensemble, which had never been part of serious opera before. Um, and so he's creating greater musical variety this way. The most elaborate example of this kind of ensemble singing occurs in the finales at the end of each act. These ensemble finales always begin with a chorus. So I want to look at the chorus first. Um, as the curtain goes up on Act One, I mean act, the Act One finale here, uh, the people of Babylon are rejoicing at the prospect of getting a new king. I assume you've all read through my plot synopsis, so I don't have to explain what's going on. Yes, <laughs> that's all right. My students never do that. Why? Why should anybody else do it? Okay. Um, so. Um, Semiramide has been reigning for 20 years or so without a husband, and finally the populace has demanded she pick a husband. And so they're all getting excited about this. So the opening chorus, I'm just going to play you a minute or two of the opening chorus to demonstrate something about choral writing. Uh, the chorus, by the way, is borrowed by Rossini from French opera, where choruses were extremely popular and always part of French opera. Okay, so let's look at this chorus. Beginning of the ensemble finale at end of Act One. Now, now you notice that's really not choral singing. That's kind of like a group aria. In other words, it's just one melodic line, and everybody's singing the same melodic line, which is to say that Italian opera choruses, when they're new in the 19th century here in Italy, are extremely simple. One might say simple-minded. Why is that? The rest of the opera isn't simple. The rest of the opera is incredibly difficult. So what's going on? Well, there are two possible explanations. One is that there was no tradition of choral singing in Italy in the theater. That is, there's no trained opera chorus. It's all brand new. You know, the Met has a wonderful chorus of marvelous singers, and they can sing anything. But in Italy, in Rossini's day, to get a chorus together, you had to go out on the street and say, hey, can you sing? <laughs> and that's it. So, not a lot of great, great training. 
then that means you've got essentially a bunch of amateurs at work in the chorus. Now what happens when you have a bunch of amateurs in a chorus? Think of your favorite church choir, all right, full of amateurs. What happens when you get a bunch of people who barely read music are singing different parts? Like this guy is singing one part, this, this is the soprano part, and here is the tenor part over here, and they kind of don't match, they're doing different things at different times. Everybody gets confused. The best way to make sure everybody stays on track is that everybody sings the same thing. Because in amateur choruses, you just copy what the guy next to you is doing, whether your part is different or not. So this may explain why the choruses are so simple. They had to be. The other thing, though, is that I must say, nobody was interested in choral singing. Rossini thought maybe it'd be a good little diversion to add some choral singing to his opera. But really, the audience is just sitting there kind of, yeah, 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 come on, let me hear my next great aria kind of thing. So there's a combination of bad singers, no training, and no interest on the part of the audience leads to this kind of extremely simple choral writing. So every chorus in the opera that you'll hear tonight or have heard already, incredibly boring. Okay, now the rest of the ensemble finale consists of alternating sections of recitative slash arioso with ensembles, and it works like this. The recitative arioso sections is where you have dialogue and the action moves forward and then the action will stop and you get the ensemble, which is the reaction to what just happened. The reaction, the ensemble, is the nice lyrical ensemble part, the chorus often with the soloist all together. Um, it's what the singers call the park and bark section. Um, <laughs> literally, they get up on stage after they've done the dialogue and whatnot and they're moving around. Suddenly it's time for the ensemble, the reaction, park, and they bark. That's it. Uh, so this is how these ensembles work, alternating action, reaction, action, reaction. So what I'm going to show you here is the first action segment where Semiramide announces to the populace that she's finally ready to appoint a new king. All right, so that's the action part. So let's listen to that. That's recitative. I suppose I should probably say something. This is not the kind of recitative you may be used to hearing in Mozart opera. I already said secco recitative is gone. The orchestra now accompanies the recitative. But in bel canto opera, the recitatives are almost as decorative as the arias themselves. This is the most melodic and decorative recitative you'll ever hear anywhere. Um, the difference between that and what I call arioso is simply that in the arioso, the orchestra has a more prominent melodic part underneath that decorative singing. Okay, so what happens then? She says, all right, you all must swear. All right, that's the action. Then everybody reacts to that by saying, I swear to be a good boy. <laughs> so here comes the ensemble reaction to that.
So this section is just the, the main characters, the soloists, and eventually the chorus will join in a big ensemble. You see, nobody's moving in muscle, right? This is, they're parked. Okay, gorgeous music. The ensembles are just beautiful. All right, now, if you go back to this page of standard musical forms for a moment, you'll see at the bottom of the page is the ensemble finale. And I point out here that the ensemble finale, like the Cavatina Cabaletta, is in two large sections, the first slow, the second fast. What you're listening to is the opening, which is the slow section. It finishes with a fast section, which I'll get to in just a moment. But then underneath that little definition of the two parts, I have a structural diagram which applies to this particular ensemble finale. So uh, what, what, we, what we've heard so far is the opening chorus, and then we heard the recitative or arioso, in which Semiramide says, okay, you all have to promise to be good people and follow the new king. And then we heard the ensemble number one, which is the group reflection, which they all say, yes, I'll behave myself, and I will pledge allegiance. Following that comes more action arioso, in which Arsace then says, the king is going to be, I'm sorry, Semiramide says, the king is going to be Arsace, and he's going to be my husband. Despite the fact, by the way, he's at least 20 years younger than she. Doesn't matter. And then suddenly, as soon as she says that, the earth starts shaking, trembling, rumbles of the earth. Um, and as soon as you have rumbling earth, you need, have to have a reaction to that. So everybody stops and parks again, and says, oh my God, what's happening? Big second ensemble, this is all slow. Then, at the end of that ensemble, the ghost of the dead king, the one who had been murdered 20 years before, murdered, by the way, by his own wife and her boyfriend, <clears throat> but in any case, the dead king's ghost appears, and he says to Arsace, yes, you will reign, but first, my death, my murder must be avenged, and you must find a victim to avenge me. Okay, that's the action that takes place at the beginning of the fast strata. Then that is followed by the big ensemble in a fast tempo at the end where everybody says, oh my God, oh my God. That's it. <laughs> I want to play you this fast ensemble because I want you to pay particular attention to the music. There is something wrong with the music in this fast ensemble. And I don't know whether you're going to notice it or not, but I'll try to help you along with this. So let's look at the big Stretta ensemble at the very end in the fast tempo. Now notice the text about dread and horror. Terrifying events. Okay, you had enough of that. Now what's wrong with that? 
Yeah, it sounds like a dance. Exactly. Who said that? That's brilliant. Yes, it sounds like a dance. What's going on here? The music doesn't seem to match the text. Why not? Well, again, there are two possible reasons for this kind of crazy mismatch of text to music. One reason is that nobody in Italy cared about what they were singing, what the text was. If the music was nice, it was fine. That was what made everybody happy. If it was nice music, it's fine. Notice this tragic situation is all in the major mode for some reason. The other reason, however, is that Rossini often liked to save time. You know, Rossini wrote a ton of operas, like, I don't know how many altogether, 60, 70 operas in 20 years? How do you do that? You're writing like three, four operas a year. The only way to do that is to plagiarize from yourself. So if an opera was done in Rome, another one of your operas done in Rome last month, now you're in Venice, um, nobody's heard the opera in Rome, it's got a lot of great music, you just borrow the music and move it into your new opera and save yourself a ton of time. So it's likely that this kind of mismatched music with text is the result frequently of borrowing music from a wedding scene in another opera and dropping it into this horrible situation here. Okay, now let's go on and talk about duets. Um, duets are extremely important in this kind of opera of Rossini. Uh, this is where you have two main characters brought into a point of dramatic confrontation. But these are also confrontations between two great singers in the bel canto tradition. So near the end of the opera, Arsacei, who has now discovered, because the high priest told him, uh, the high priest told him that Arsacei is the long-lost son of the queen, the one who disappeared when he was five years old, um, and so he cannot marry Semiramide, which is what she wants. Obviously, he can't marry his mother. Um, and not only that, he has also been told that it was his mother who plotted with Prince Assur to kill the king. Ah, so now this is becoming very difficult. So he confronts her in a big duet at the end of the uh, second act. He confronts her with this news and says, look, I can't marry you because you're my mother and I know you killed my father. This is really major news. Um, these duets all have a pattern. Again, back to my formal diagram. All these duets work the same way. Again, they move from slow to fast. The slow section is called the Shena and the Primo Tempo. The Shena is just the dialogue and recitative at the beginning, followed by the Primo Tempo. Now, this is something I want you to understand, the Primo Tempo. It consists of two long solos, one for each character with a big cadenza at the end, and then finally, after they've done their solos, they sing together, all right? So I want you to listen to that part first. So we'll skip the recitative. That's simply the part where he says, you're my mom. Yeah, so let's get, get right to the singing. Yeah, the important idea here of, about this duet is that the high priest has told Arsace that his mother was guilty of killing the king, and therefore his mother is probably or possibly the sacrificial victim that the ghost has asked for. When the ghost appeared and said, you have to find somebody to avenge my murder, he was thinking, well, we don't know who that is, and then it turns out to be his mother and Asur. And so this duet is all about how can I kill my mother? <laughs> Thank you. 
So this is her solo. She basically says, oh, go ahead, kill me. big cadenza at the end. So the duet essentially starts with like a little mini aria. turn and he gets to his say but notice it's the same tune This is the tune that she sang, Kill Your Guilty Mother. Now he's going to sing. The question is, they've got, you have two characters with two different points of view, but they're singing exactly the same thing. That is, they're expressing totally different ideas with the same music. And why is that? Again, it all has to do with singing and music, which is to say that if you're at the Manhattan School of Music and you're running a concerto competition, let's say it's a piano concerto competition, the best way to run a piano concerto competition is for the administration to pick the piece and everybody plays the same piece. And why is that a good way? Because then you can see what everybody does with the same thing. Otherwise, you're comparing a Mozart concerto to a Rachmaninoff concerto, which would be silly. So what we have here is the same principle. If they're singing the same thing, you can compare them. Now, why would you want to compare them? This is more a sport than it is anything else. It's all the people who are rooting for this singer on that side and all the people rooting for that singer on the other side, and it's going to be a battle between the two to see who sings the same thing better. And so that's the way these things work. Um, they all run that way. Now, eventually, after the two big solos, they will end up singing together. But I'm going to skip that and go directly to the cabaletta. 
So these duets end the same way the arias do, slow, fast. Now you've got two people singing the fast decorative part. And here, Rossini has arranged the parts so that it is literally a singing competition. Each singer gets one line at a time, and the lines are extremely similar. And so it's kind of like, OK, you think you sang that well? Listen to me sing this. Oh, yeah? Well, listen, try this. Oh, yeah, I can do that better. Then how about this? Oh, now I got that beat, too. So it's just a con continual fight back and forth. Watch how this unfolds. It's absolutely fabulous. And you be the judge. Is it the soprano or the mezzo who comes out? That's how it works, the battle back and forth. Now, however, the battle gets more interesting when you get to the repeat of the cabaletta, because just like the aria, the fast part has to be repeated. Now they can throw in their own decorations. Um, I'm going to play you the cabaletta repeat from a recording that I have with Jennifer Larmore, the mezzo, and Cheryl Studer. So listen to what these two do with the same thing. Now they're going to change the parts, and everybody is improvising something harder than what the last one did. So. That's different. That's different. Same. That's different. That's a lot different. Okay, you, you get the idea. <laughs> Cut that is to ruin the opera. I mean, that's just, I live for this, right? I'm going to the opera to hear the battle of the sopranos. All right, so in conclusion, I'm going to say that Rossini's remaking of serious Italian opera set the musical standards on which all of his successors built. 
That is to say, you cannot appreciate Donizetti, Bellini, or Verdi without understanding all of the formulas and the changes that Rossini brought into this. And by the way, one of the most important changes, which I forgot to mention, is that all of the operas now end tragically. Because in the 18th century, all serious opera had happy endings. And now we've moved to the tragic endings. Um, but again, that was a switch that Rossini made gradually. And there was one of his operas that he decided he wanted he wanted it to follow the tragic ending of the uh, literature on which it was based. I think it's Armida. In any case, he puts it on with the tragic ending, and it was so new, audiences were so shocked, they, there was a furor, uh, an, an outrage, and Rossini had to go back and rewrite the ending and put in a happy ending. So some of Rossini's operas have multiple endings, depending on how the audience goes. Um, so anyway, it's important to understand all this. If you're the kind of opera goer that's thrilled by virtuosic singing from all the characters on stage as they all sort of compete with each other, then you are going to swoon with ecstatic delight with this opera. Um, if, on the other hand, you're the kind of opera goer who insists that the music match the text and there be real dramatic stuff going on, Rossini's Semiramide may not be your cup of tea. Um, because we are more used to listening to the later 19th century operas of Verdi and Puccini, Rossini's operas sound like something out of another world in many cases. Uh, it's a world of opera that requires a resetting of your mind, your operatic mind. The real appreciation of this kind of opera can only be gotten by immersing oneself in the aesthetics of the early 19th century and accepting Rossini's music for what it is. Brilliant vocal display born out of an era in which singers and great singing were the sole raison d'etre of dramatic music. I hope you all enjoy. Thank you. Now that was interesting. That was Dr. Jeffrey Langford talking about the bel canto fireworks of Rossini's Semiramide. Performances of Semiramide at the Metropolitan Opera run until March 17, 2018. If you enjoyed this discussion and you're ever in New York City, you can join us at the Metropolitan Opera Guild for one of our opera learning experiences. From singer interviews to lectures to master classes and continuing education classes, there really is something for everyone at the Guild. For more information, visit metguild.org. I'm Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.